Well, good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. If you've been a part of City, you know that we are processing through a summer-long sermon series that's been entitled Life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit. The reason why we're doing that is because the Newer Testament is clear that Jesus believed and taught, and other New Testament writers believed and taught, that life in the Spirit and the Holy Spirit in our lives is way more than just maybe, say, wearing a t-shirt. Now, this morning I am wearing a shirt that I'm very proud of. It's a shirt that, can you see it right there? Can the camera guy zoom in or? We'll say no. But it's a shirt that celebrates the University of Virginia. Boy, you guys are very sedate this morning. But I, I appreciate it. I even love the University of Virginia. My son went there. My daughter Allie is there, and my other daughter Jackie will be there in the fall. So all three of my kids going through UVA. But you know what? I wear the shirt, and I never went there. <laughs> never studied. Never did the hard work of the courses. But the shirt is something you can kind of put on. I've never really lived it. I have cheered at football and basketball games. Most importantly, I have cheered at the most important sport at the University of Virginia, and that's wrestling. Again, you guys are rather sedate this morning. But I'm very thankful and grateful for the University of Virginia. But I never went there. I didn't live the life. And here's what I know to be true. A lot of people view the Holy Spirit as though it's something that's somewhat distant from us, something that maybe you put on a T-shirt or something that's kind of external to who you are. But I want to say again that Jesus Christ himself and all of the Newer Testament writers believe that the Holy Spirit is central and essential to your life and my life as I follow Jesus and serve others. I'm also aware that there are a lot of churches that never speak about the Holy Spirit. And yet, every New Testament writer looks at the Spirit of God and says, this is absolutely essential and central to your life. Now, the other thing that I'm going to do is that each and every Sunday, building up to the 26th, which is the last Sunday of this month, I'm going to wear a shirt that speaks about something that I enjoy. Next week, I'm going to be preaching on, and the sermon will be on, the fruits of the Spirit. So I'm going to wear a shirt that celebrates my favorite fruit. I am. Now, what I want to encourage you to do on Sunday morning, the 26th, I want you to wear a shirt or a T-shirt that celebrates something that's important to you in your life, whether it's a team you cheer for, a place that you've been, whatever the case may be, I want you to wear a T-shirt to church on Sunday morning. How does that sound good to everyone? How many of you already know what shirt you're going to wear? How many of you are going to go buy one before the 26th? You're going to get ready for that Sunday morning. But here's what we know. 
The Holy Spirit is central to our life as we follow Jesus. Now, oftentimes the sermons that I bring are practical in nature from the get-go. This one is not. My stated goal this morning is that you would understand the Holy Spirit the way that the first century Christians did as we read about it in the Newer Testament. That is my goal. Because I believe that when you understand Scripture, you can put faith behind that and it transforms your life. Scripture, when it is engaged by faith, transforms your life. And so that's where we're going to move this morning. Now, in order to begin, we're going to begin with Jesus. We're going to end with Jesus, but we're going to start with Jesus this morning. So if you would read with me Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to begin reading verses 17 through 20. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Let's read. You can read out loud with me since you've been so sedate this morning. You can read out loud. Are we ready? Are we ready? Let's read. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, no, the least stroke of the pen will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And you ought to be worried at the end of the reading of that verse. Because Jesus holds up the most righteous people of his day, and he says this to his audience. And by the way, what I just read is sort of in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus climbs up this hill or this mountain, and he begins to teach the thousands of people that are following him. It's the greatest teaching and the longest teaching of Jesus. So Jesus there looks at the individuals in front of him, and in Matthew 5.20, here's what he says. I want to read it again. You've already read it. Here's what he says. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. Jesus' message mentions the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he says, and he says to them, and he says to you and me, unless our righteousness is greater and surpasses theirs, we will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. By the way, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are synonymous. Same thing. So it would be important for us to understand what Jesus means because how many of us would like to go to heaven. I'll go like this. I'm in. Want to go. But please understand, when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about something you have to die to get. He's talking about something that he died to give. It's a big difference. Big difference. And it means it's available now. 
You don't wait to get to heaven or you don't wait to die to go into the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is here now through Jesus. That's how it works. Now, Jesus mentions the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Well, who are they? Well, it's pretty simple. The Pharisees are a group of religious leaders who have taken it upon themselves to be the religious, spiritual, and moral police of the Jewish faith in Israel of his day. So what the Pharisees did and what they believed was this. They believed if they took the laws that ran the temple where God's presence dwelt, if they took those laws that were assigned to the priests and those that served in the temple, if they took those laws and they applied them to everyone, then God by his Spirit would visit all of Israel. It wouldn't just be in the temple But God, by His Spirit, would visit all of Israel. And when God did that, He would reestablish the land, and He would reestablish their dominance over their enemies, and they would rise up victoriously. So this is serious business. If you believe that, it's very serious business. And so the Pharisees were the ones that did that. They were the moral police. Then there were the teachers of the law. They are the ones that studied the 613 laws of the Older Testament, and they would break them down and explain the laws to the people. And through that explanation, you learned how to live out those 613 laws. Just so you know, there are 365 negative laws and 248 positive. Isn't that amazing? There's one negative law for every day of the year. Now, what did they look to? Well, the teachers of the law looked to the Ten Commandments, the 613 laws, and they also established what is known as the tradition of men. This was how they brought the law of God to the people of Israel, and you would obey every single law to its finest detail, and if everyone did it, then God would visit Israel reestablish their land, and raise them up victorious over their enemies. The problem is, that's impossible. It's not going to work. But what's amazing to me is that Jesus says, unless your righteousness and my righteousness is greater than what the Pharisees called for, and the teachers of the law called for, we're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. We're not going to be in. So, what does Jesus mean? Well, what is also amazing in that paragraph from Matthew 5 that we read is this. The Bible says that Jesus, in speaking at the Sermon on the Mount, announces that he has come to fulfill the law. Here it is. I want to refresh your memory. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Wow. Jesus, in his teaching, says, He will live his life in such a way where he will fulfill all 613 laws and he literally will become the embodiment 
of the law of God, he's going to fulfill it all. But notice, he does not ask the people in the audience to do the same. He says, I'm going to fulfill all the laws, the laws of sacrifice, the laws of how you treat others, the laws of commerce. All of those laws he will fulfill in his lifetime. Picture it this way. The 613 laws of the Older Testament are an outline sketch of the person of Jesus, and he fulfills it. He fills it in. He colors it in when the law is lived exactly as it's supposed to be lived. But remember, Jesus says this. I want to read it again. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want us to understand what Jesus meant because he meant it. In order to understand, we have to understand what law is. What is the law? The most famous that you have heard of would be the Ten Commandments. How many of you have ever heard of the Ten Commandments? How many of you are awake? Raise your other hand. You've heard of the Ten Commandments. But I want to explain to you what the law is, how it operates, how it moves in and through our lives. What you have to understand is, is that the Ten Commandments were purposed to Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. And the purpose for them was, was that they would be able to function as a people. They had lived in bondage for 400 years. They didn't know how to behave. And now as they move into the promised land, God says, do these 10 things. And if you will do these 10 things, you will actually be able to live as people. Now here's what's interesting. Here's the example that I want to draw, and you can do it with all ten, but I want to draw one that's very personal and near to me. Law number seven, you shall not commit adultery. God says, don't do that. Because if you commit adultery, it will destroy the relationships of your life and it will destroy culture. God looks at his people as they're moving into the promised land, and one of his laws was, do not commit adultery. If you want to live as a free person in a free land, don't do this. Now, I want to tell you, I have never committed adultery. I've never done that. But here's what we need to understand about the law. The law sets out for us rules, laws, but the problem is, those laws are powerless to help me to keep them. That law sits there. But that law is powerless to help me to achieve that law. Now picture, picture there are 613 laws. And every single one of those laws calls you to some task. It tells you to do some things and like the law of don't commit adultery to avoid some things. But the issue is, is that that law cannot help me to achieve that. But what it does do is it points out a problem. 
It points out where the trouble is. It kind of reaches out and says, here's where a problem lies. And the issue with the law is, is it can point out the problems, but it can't help me to avoid them. Now, please know this. How many of you would like to have an employee that lives in your life the way the law lives? Let me give you the example. How many of you, if you have ever worked for someone, or maybe you've been a boss or a leader and you had an employee like this, and this employee was so faithful to show up each day and point out to you all the problems? You ever met that person? They show up and they go, hey, problem over here. Hey, problem over there. Hey, problem here. And you know what they never do? There you go. They never try to solve the problem. And look, if you're an employee, I lead people. And you know the type of employees and followers that I love are the type that show up and point out a problem, and they do it with humility and grace. They point out a problem, but then they say, you know, Pete, I've been thinking about this, and here's how I think that we can solve this. Man, I love that. Please do not be a follower of Jesus and an employee who shows up and points out problems, and you've done nothing to try to think through how to solve it. Don't live that way. If you can figure out where the problem lies, pray and ask God to give you wisdom on how to repair the problem. Now, with that said, the law doesn't do that. The law 613 times, and then in compounded by the traditions of men, shows up in culture and says, don't do this, don't do that. There's where the problem lies, but there's no help in order to solve it. None. So what ends up happening is this. When people begin to realize they cannot live up to the law, what they begin to do is they begin to be racked with guilt in shame. That's the first response. When you recognize that there's a set of rules in order to get to God, but you can't get by the rules because the rules seem to capture you. The first response is guilt and shame. I know of some followers of Jesus, and you're sitting right here this morning, and you think about following in Jesus, and the first thing that comes to mind is guilt and shame. The next thing is, another response is, is that when you think about the rules of getting towards God, and this happens in the Older Testament with the 613 laws, you can literally read about it in the Older and the Newer Testament. The people just become numb. They shut down. And the third response is to lower the standards, to say that, you know what, God's Word really didn't say that. Let's rework it so that it's easier to live. So the responses to the law, the logical response to the law every time is guilt and shame. Or I become numb. Or I look at what God says and I lower my standards so that I don't feel guilt and shame. What I want to say of all three of those responses are not necessary at all in a life with Jesus. At all. But in order to understand the law, we also have to understand something else. And it's this. 
we have to understand flesh. Flesh. I want you to go like this. Grab your arm and say with me, flesh. Flesh. It's also the Greek word, sarks. Not sharks, but sarks. You see, sarks in the Newer Testament is translated flesh. And when it's translated flesh, it's always in conjunction with sin. But you see, there's sort of two definitions, working definitions for the word flesh, for the word sarks in the Newer Testament. The first one is this. Flesh is the thing that allows your soul to inhabit a physical world. It's your physical body. It gives expression to your soul. Your flesh, your sarks, is what let people around you recognize you and interact with you, and you're part of their life, and they're part of your life. That's what sarks does. So what I want you to do is look at the neighbor on either side of you and say, you look very sarksy today. <laughs> Go ahead and do that. I didn't say sexy, I said sarksy. Look at your neighbor and say, man, you look sarksy today. Here's why. You look sarksy every day. Not just today, but every day. You look sarksy. But here's the other thing that you need to know about flesh or sarks. It's not just the physical body, but it's this. And the Apostle Paul picks up on this. Here's what he says. Another definition of flesh is this. It's the part of Pete Hartwig that is corrupted by this world. It's not necessarily physical, but it's part of Pete Hartwig that is corrupted by living in a fallen and a broken world, and it's the part of Pete Hartwig that is drawn towards the things that are outside of God's best for my life. That's Sarks. And so when you think about it, what you quickly begin to understand is this is that God's law shows up and there's 613 laws and those laws say do not do that. And what the Newer Testament writers say is that the law awakens my flesh to the understanding that there are certain times in my life where I am drawn outside of what's God's best in my life. That's sarks. So the law wakes up the flesh to the fact that here's what God wants, but I can't always do it. The law wakes up the flesh. And when the flesh begins to wake up, then flesh moves towards sin and sin brings death. That's what the law achieves. If you think following Jesus is a list of rules, you're wrong. Never has been, never will be. Now, there are certain things that the Bible calls us to in holiness and in righteousness, but a lot of people think that following Jesus is about following the rules, and if I following the rules, I end up entering the kingdom of God. And here's what Jesus says, your righteousness must surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and all they cared about was rules. Now... Here's a question for those of us maybe who've been followers of Jesus for a while. Here's my question. If you think about what you know about Scripture, and I was to ask you this question, 
Law versus what? Law versus what? Grace. That's what everyone says. Law versus what? That's not what the Newer Testament says. It's wrong. Here's what the Newer Testament says. The Newer Testament says law versus spirit. Huge difference. And when we talk about a life in the spirit and what it looks like to follow Jesus and serve others, when we talk about that, please understand that life in Christ is something that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The difference between the Older Testament and the Newer Testament is this. The Older Testament is based on 613 laws. Jesus came and he fulfilled all of the laws, even the sacrificial laws, which means his physical body became a sacrifice for you and for me. And when I say yes to Jesus, I move into the reality of the law, but I do it through him through my faith and my hope and my trust in in Jesus Christ, and in return for that, the Bible says, the Holy Spirit now dwells in me. So how I follow Jesus is not based on law. It's based on the power of the Spirit that's now indwelling my life. It's essential to understand this. Now, the Apostle Paul phrases it this way. I want you to catch this. Romans chapter 8, verse 2. Here's what Paul writes. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Do you catch that? I want to read it again. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, I want you to notice something that Paul does. And I want you to stay with me, please. Paul says this, that the law brings sin and death. But through Christ, we have what he calls the law of the Spirit. In other words... When you say yes to Jesus, you put your faith, hope, and trust in Him, and you begin to follow Him, what ends up happening is the Holy Spirit enters your life, and Paul calls that the law of the Spirit, and I want to tell you why that's better than rules. It's very important. It's this. I picked out Ten Commandments, law number seven. What was number seven? Do you remember? Thou shalt not what? Commit adultery. I want you to catch this. There cannot be a law for everything in life. There can't be. You think 613 laws a lot? Nope. There needs to be a whole lot more. If you don't believe me, ask your spouse. God should have written a rule about you picking up your socks off the floor in the bedroom. That should have been the 12th commandment or whatever, right? There's no way there can be laws for everything. And compounding with that is this. That law that says do not commit adultery, imagine if you approach me and you say, Pete, do you love your wife, Fran? And I say, never committed adultery. Where's the life? Just because I don't commit adultery does not mean that I love my wife. Doesn't mean that. And all 613 laws are one-dimensional. It can never produce the life that it intended to produce. Can't do it. 
so I can go around and never commit adultery and never love Fran. I'm married to her. She's my wife, but I never commit adultery. But see, what happens in the Newer Testament is this. There's what's called the law of the Spirit. And the law of the Spirit is that now the Holy Spirit is active in my life. Not only does the Holy Spirit give me the power not to move towards adultery, but the Holy Spirit also moves in my life in ways where there aren't any laws that govern marriage. Do you get this? Do you understand this? This is key. And here's why. The next time you move towards something, the Holy Spirit will not only convict you of what is right or wrong, but will also give you power to move in the other direction. That's why Romans 8, 2 says this, that there is the spirit of life versus the law of sin and death. There's the law of the spirit which brings life, and the law or the rules can do nothing but bring sin and death. So what do I do? How do I handle this? How do I put feet to my faith? How do you put feet to your faith? Please hear me as clearly as I can say this. The moment you say yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwells your life. And the more I move towards the Spirit and I step into the Spirit, the Newer Testament calls it walking in the Spirit. When the Spirit of God says, move away from this, and I do, I become more and more sensitive to the working of the Spirit in my life. Let me put it this way. There are some of us here, and in prayer I know that this is true. There are some of us that are here for the first time you have said no to something in your life that has plagued you. And the Spirit of God has begun to convict you of something in your life, and so you've said no to it, and instead of moving toward it, you've moved towards something else, and as you've moved towards something else, there's been a peace that has overcome your soul. I have found that the peace of God is the bellwether of the voice of God's Spirit in my life. And so when I move towards something, if I begin to lack peace, I'll sense that that's not the direction that I need to move towards. Now, I want to be clear about this. The Newer Testament never says that followers of Jesus will never sin. Now, that's not an excuse to run out and sin. It's not what that is. But the Newer Testament tells us so clearly that in Jesus, that if I do, I can be forgiven, takes care of the guilt and shame. But what the Holy Spirit does and teaches us in the Newer Testament is that when I say yes to Jesus and I move towards something that's not right, the Holy Spirit will actually not only convict me, but empower me to live a different life. It's how this works. And why do I want us to be so aware of this? One of us to be so aware of this because to be aware of the working of the Spirit will give me eyes and ears to begin to see and hear the Spirit working in my life. Here's what Jesus said in John 14, 16. He said to his disciples at the end of his life, he said, and I will ask the Father, and he, meaning the Father, will send the advocate to help you, and he will be with you forever. The spirit of what? Truth. In other words, 
Jesus announces to his disciples as he's going to be taken away physically from them. When his sarks is going to be exiting the world, he says that he's going to ask the Father to send the Spirit. And the Spirit will be with us. He's the Spirit of truth. And he will be with us forever. Not only this, and here's where we can literally put feet to our faith. In Luke chapter 11, verse 13, when Jesus taught on prayer, here's what he said. How much more will your Father in heaven give wealth, no suffering, a happy life? No. How much more will your Father in heaven give the what? The Holy Spirit to those who will ask him. Shocking. When Jesus does an inaugural teaching on prayer, he says to his disciples, when you pray, ask for the Holy Spirit to be in your life. That's amazing. Now here's what I have found. I have found in my own life, this doesn't mean that I live a sinless life, but here's what it does mean, that I am walking into a righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. I am walking in a righteousness that is not based upon laws and rules. I am walking in a righteousness where the Spirit of God is alive. And I'm not just checking off a list of rules saying, okay, I'm right with God, or oh, today I'm not right with God. And how this works is, is I'm walking with God. The Holy Spirit is not just saying every day to me about my wife, don't commit adultery, don't commit adultery, don't commit adultery. The Holy Spirit is saying, pick up your socks. Now, the Holy Spirit's voice sounds a lot like Fran's, I have to admit. But with that in mind, do you understand what I'm saying? A list of rules can never empower me not to do them. All it can tell me is, is I'm broken. All it can tell me is, I have no strength. All it can tell me is, I'm wrong again. Whereas life in the Spirit and walking in the Spirit gives me a power and an authority to walk in life. You know what that results in? A righteousness that's pleasing to God. It's a righteousness that's greater than the rules and the 613 laws that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were pushing on everyone. Again, the purpose of this sermon was to help you to understand the law of the Spirit who brings life and to move you away from the law that brings sin and death because Jesus fulfilled that law he captured it in himself, and in Christ, we can find new life in him. Let's stand together. As we stand together, Stephen's going to lead us in worship, and as he does, I'd like for you to take a moment to close your eyes and focus on Jesus. Maybe this is the first time you have ever done this, but I want to encourage you to close your eyes and focus on Jesus. And when you do, 
Let's take Luke chapter 11, verse 15 at face value. Say, God, please give me the Holy Spirit. Dear God, please fill me with more of your spirit. Let's worship together.
close our eyes one more time. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for life in the Spirit. I pray for each one of us that we would find that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life is filling us this morning. Lord, help us to be a group of people who have a new kind of life because of the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm asking that if there is anyone here who's in bondage to the law, to the rules, to flesh, and to death, I pray that in this moment, through Jesus Christ, in faith in you, Jesus, that we would find a new kind of life a life that's based in the law of the Spirit. Grant that to us. If you would like prayer this morning, I want to encourage you, don't exit until you've been prayed for by one of our life group leaders or a member of our prayer team. They're going to be moving along the walls now. I also want to encourage you that if you would like to stay for more worship, please do so. Allow God to fill your heart. But now may the Lord bless you, and may the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to be turned towards you, and may he give you his peace and his spirit. And we pray these things in Christ's name, in Jesus' name. Amen.
you did on the cross for us, Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you loved us so much that you came and fulfilled every single law so that we could have life in the spirit with you, Jesus. We pray that as we leave this place, God, that we would be filled with more of your spirit than when we even entered this morning. God, that that would not leave us throughout the week, but that we would walk in your life and walk in your spirit, Jesus. We thank you that we can worship you this morning. We love you, Lord. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Go in peace.